Hi, I'm Joey Pantoliano, the wonderful, uh, charming Joe Pantoliano, and this is my daughter, Daniela Pantoliano, and we Hello. have... Uh, also wonderfully charming. Yeah you, yeah, you take after my side of the family, and you're listening to... Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully not too much. <laughs> you're listening to No Kidding Me Too. Yes, welcome to No Kidding Me Too. Today's guest... Uh, is a, a lifelong family friend, Marsha Gay Harden. Yeah. And also, Mama Marsha is what I Daniela, like. Daniela, she is your godmother. Yep. Officially, mm-hmm. official godmother. Yeah. And uh, we all kind of grew up together. The kids all grew up together. And was it Eulela and Isabella? Daniela? Yeah. Eulela and Isabella were born, I think, only like a month Weeks or two apart. apart. Yeah. Yeah. That's Marsha's um, oldest daughter. I remember once you and mom were like going through your will or something. I think I was in middle school. I very specifically remember you asking me, if we died, who do you want to live with? Marsha or Uncle Nick? And I said, I love Uncle Nick with all my heart. But I said Marsha because she had uh, the kids at that point. And I thought that that would be fun to live with like her. Were you disappointed that we didn't die? Um, I mean, she does have that really cool property upstate. It would have been mm-hmm. nice to like have more time there. But um, no, no, I was not disappointed that you guys didn't die. <laughs> Very happy that you didn't actually. You guys are never going to die. Um, Don't put that kind of pressure on me, kid. <laughs> Marcia Gay Harden, <laughs> an award-winning uh, actress, Academy Award, Tony Award winner, uh, Emmy Award nominated, uh, Golden Globe, uh, Pulitzer Prize, and, and the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, she's a wonderful humanitarian <laughs> and also uh, a, a wonderful uh, mother and uh, artist, a lover mm-hmm. of life. And this is going to be the first serious conversation you're going to have with her, uh, an adult conversation. Not so, actually. I, um, I've had many of these kind of conversations with Marsha Um She's confided in me in some things and I confided in hers in some things, but it's really cool to talk to her because she was in the movie canvas that kind of started getting your wheels turning with all of this stuff. And I believe also she went to Washington with us for No Kidding Me Too when we were lobbying for for mental health care reform, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Mental health reform and and. uh... A lot of that, you know, a lot of the bills in the Affordable Care Act, where finally mental health care was covered by insurance, was was one of the things that we led with. Hi, Marsha. Hi, Joey. Hi. How did you meet Marsha? You guys were pregnant with Danny, right? When I met you. When you met me, you're pregnant with Danny. Yeah, we, we 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 were doing we were doing a movie in in Toronto with uh, Marcello Mastriani and Shirley MacLaine and Kathy Bates and Jessica Tandy and and Marcia and I uh, became really really good friends with Marcello and we would hang out and have dinner with him every night at the same place, uh, Yosos, uh, in Toronto. Not to move away from that story, Joey, because that's like one of the film experiences that you look back on your life and you go, I had that. I had that time with Marcello Mastroianni at Iosos. When, remember all those refugees were coming in 
He goes, the war just began uh, uh, in Croatia because Yosa was Croatia, and that's very that's like on the border of Italy. So he spoke Italian, and it's one of the reasons why Marcello liked eating there, only there. And and amazing, he would do that black squid risotto, which apparently takes all day long to make. But Marcello would go there all the time, and he he didn't like eating by himself. And he would say, Mamasha, I cannot go eat pasta just with me. And, and so me and Elizabeth Himmelstein, the voice and speech coach, and Joey, we would all go down there. And we were just like, and we'd get dressed up. Marcello didn't like it if he, did, if he showed up looking sloppy for dinner. So we would dress nicely. And within two weeks, I had gained 10 pounds and had to buy a whole new wardrobe. Because <laughs> Marcello, remember he liked people to eat? Were you there at that dinner that he had those famous... Enrico, somebody, the um, famous cinematographer, was with dinner and some other really famous Italian people. And unfortunately, not educated so much, I didn't know. But I knew they were big and famous. They'd all work with Sofia. And so Marcello literally would, and I could understand enough Italian to know he was doing this. He was like, watch, watch, but in Italian, watch. And he'd put a, he'd a, put a plate on the table and he'd go, she eats, she eats. She's an actress who eats. I'm like, what is the dessert? She eats, she eats dessert. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, like, I would have done anything to please Marcello Mastriani. And that's when we first met Joey and Nancy was pregnant with Danny. And then we've become, we've just been friends ever since. And there's maybe four or five actors like that in my, uh, in all the years you just like really stay friends with the family. I mean, you stay friends with a lot of people and Joey is, you're known in Hollywood and New York as everybody knows Joey. It it really should not have been six degrees of bacon. It should have been six degrees or four degrees of Joey pants. Cause I think that would be more every freaking buddy knows Joey and loves Joey. So that was, that was, that was when we first met. And remember Kathy Bates would say, I remember Kathy said, um, cause I was kind of disappointed when the movie ended that everybody wasn't good friends because we were becoming good friends. She's like, Marge, every movie is not, everyone's over the house eating chicken afterwards. That's not every movie. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. I thought like just your friend base would just expand incrementally mm-hmm. the more and more friends. And sometimes you do a film and you don't keep anybody. Usually you keep a little bit of one person, but sometimes you don't, especially as we get older with more obligations. But then we kept each other. You are a very important part to our family. To uh, And you you stayed with us because you were a New Yorker then. You lived in New York. And, and when you would come out for um, a pilot season or work season, you'd stay with, uh, with us and the kids. At that time, it was it I was marching little frigging monsters. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about monsters? I was very well behaved. You splayed across that ottoman, watching Lion King ad nauseum <laughs> to the point where the only way I could get you to mind me was to say you deliberately disobeyed me, like the father lion did. Our whole language was. Was that in melody? And now here we are mm-hmm. working together. What a what a circle. Really nice. Tell us about growing up. Dad was in the Navy. Um, and so we were all born in various places in California, all five of us. And at a I think when I was about eight, just turning nine, he got stationed in Japan. And so we all went to Japan. We all flew to Japan. First time I think I'd ever been on an airplane. And I think it was Pan Am, which isn't here anymore. And I just remember the um, stewardesses, which that's what they were called at the time. They were called stewardesses and they were. Aren't they still? No, I thought 
Really? They're flight attendants. Oh, boy. I've, I've got to change that. Oh, for God's sake, Joey. Oh, stewardess. My tea is cold. <laughs> but anyway, we lived in Japan. And we were, my family, we were our own neighborhood because we were always moving. And so we were our own best friends. And my older sister, Leslie, would oftentimes put on little plays for the neighborhood. And we would put quilts up on the front porch and chairs out for the audience and pop popcorn and we would perform a little play charlie brown or whatever we would perform it and i loved it and i would say at that time nine i would for sure say if you had said she's a bit of an exhibitionist and a bit of an upstager and a ham you would be right but was i thinking i'd ever be a serious actress no but a ham for sure i remember standing up on a chair it wasn't scripted but there was a cake and i got on a chair holding the cake probably the princess in the pea to show how heavy the cake was and the audience roared with laughter. I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> totally upstaging everybody. But they laugh. Yeah. So um, then, you know, we came back and lived in various places in America, Texas, Washington, D.C., Virginia. I was in one play in Virginia, up the down staircase. So we would move so often, you never had the chance to be popular. And you know how in um, high school, you really are going to audition for plays and do things like that if you feel like you're part of a group, right? Because it's scary. And so to come into a new school and be like, I'm going to audition for a play, that was scary for me. But the best guys, of course, they were all gay, it turns out, but the best guys were in the theater program and the theater part. And so my best friend was an actor. He did not know he was gay. We became boyfriend, girlfriend, but he was the best. He was funny and fantastic and I adored him. And then... Later, I moved to Greece, and we stayed in touch. And then when I went to Germany, he came to visit. And um, and then later, you know, knew who he was and still stayed a really good friend of mine. It was in Greece when we moved to Greece. It was my first year of college. I'd skipped a year of high school by now because we were moving so much. It's like, what's the point? I don't want to hang out in high school and not be popular. Um, and so my dad said, do you want to go to Greece? I was like, yeah college in Greece. So I went to this college there as American accredited and I started studying everything Greek, Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek theater, Greek this, Greek that, um, while getting my liberal arts. And I would go to the Herodoticus, which is the theater beneath the Parthenon, the ancient Greek theater. And it was, you would see plays there at night sitting out on the stone stairs and you'd bring like a little bag of wine or whatever. Um, and you would watch these plays and I didn't understand them because they're in Greek. But it's like opera, it's like a libretto, right? And the audience all knew them and they loved them. And when Medea was up in the arches, the arches of the Herodoticus, and her red billowing cape was behind her and she's like hollering to the gods. And she's, it was so emotional and so beautiful. And her emotion was so big. And I was like, that's what I feel like when I have emotion. I feel big. I never feel small and insular. I feel big with it. And the, that you could express that theatrically was was interesting to me. Did I think I wanted to be an actor then? No, I thought I wanted to be a cultural attache because dad introduced me to this guy, Mr. Ball, whose job was to bring plays and theater and art and music and artists from other countries to America, just basically like exchange programs. I thought, I like that. Then in Germany for a year, I took a speech class, then I took a drama class, and the drama teacher had me playing Madame Ranovskaya in The Cherry Orchard, and Edna in um, Delicate Balance in um, Albie's play, and Cherry Orchard, the Chekhov. And after 
the end of the year, she just looked at me and she said, you're good. You have a gift. I was like, I'm done. I think that's it. I'm done. Because that's all. Again, something really simple, which is validation, is so much more of a powerful motivator than you suck. You can't do this. If you would only, you should. Just the fact that you, that somebody recognized something in me made me feel great. So when I went to Texas, you know, I only spent two years overseas. I went to Texas because uh, my parents were residents of Texas or citizens, as they would say. Um, I decided I wasn't going to do a double major in politics. I was just going to do theater. And I did my first play, Uncle Vanya. And I played Sonia. And I was terrible. I was terrible. I was terrible. Because I had no craft. I didn't really know what to do. And if I wasn't emotionally connected to the material, I didn't know what to do. So that's where I started learning the craft of it. And that um, is a love letter for me that has no end. Because I love the craft of acting. So then in Texas, that's when I first started learning. And I um, graduated from UT and eventually, you know, went to Washington, D.C. and worked there and eventually got my union cards and eventually moved to New York to wait tables. And, um, you know, I'm the girl who got off the bus in a pair of character shoes and an A-line skirt, you know, wondering, well, I'm here, where's Scorsese? <laughs> like, which I think everybody thinks that, well, why shouldn't you? And you have to, and you can only survive if you do. Everyone thinks they're special. And then your big New York lesson and LA lesson is, oh, I'm not just like everybody else, but there's a lot of people like me, and I'm like a lot of people, and there's a lot of really talented people who are never going to make it, and a lot of okay talented people who are going to make it, and you, you realize that it's something much more amorphous than your own belief in yourself. But if you didn't have the belief in yourself, you'd never get anywhere. How did you stay motivated growing up? How were you taught to deal with your emotions and motivations? Because you've always been this like strong spiritual figure in my life. And if you had a bad audition or if there was a day you couldn't get out of bed, but you had an audition, how did you get out of bed? How did you keep going until you got where you were? Probably anger, to be honest with you. Probably anger. I want it. Why? I remember I used to say, like, why not me? Or I actually, of course, I'd be like, why me? Why me? Why would you think anybody would want you? Why would you think this? Why would you think that? And I would beat myself up. And then I would angrily say, why not me? You know, if this person can make, sometimes I, God bless Danny DeVito. I'd be like, yeah, Danny fucking DeVito could make it. Why can't I? You know, like I would just be like angry. And, but realizing in the gift of Danny DeVito is Danny DeVito believed in himself. And he believed that whether he was shorter than the other guys or, you know, a, a, he's a character actor, there's a place for you in this world and a place for you in this business. And he believed that enough to push for that enough and be discovered enough. So anger was a big motivator. I wasn't, I was not taught, you know, my pull yourself up by, by the bootstraps was definitely the, the lesson don't give up the Churchill thing. Don't give up. Just don't give up was the lesson. Um, you know, if, if you, if you want it, you have to work for it. I think more than anything else, my dad and mother would have, would have generated a work ethic in us. My dad would always say, don't do a halfway job. If you're going to do a half-ass job, don't do the job at all. Cause it's half-ass, but he was really, really strict. So he probably taught us that kind of grit, I would say, 
but not necessarily these like motivational things to be kind to yourself. I was never kind to myself. I mean, Joey, you said that to me. You said, I've never met anybody so hard on yourself. And we're both hard on ourselves. And um, I'm really hard on myself. So that was part of it. You know, my agents would go, because when I went to grad school, I went back to grad school because I felt like other people knew something I didn't know. I wasn't booking jobs and I had agents. I'd gotten my first job out of Backstage Magazine. I was waiting tables. I thought it was, you know, I was getting good feedback. So the good feedback is really important also, by the way, I will say. You need some validation. You need to, to know that you're not just shooting in the dark in a tunnel. Well, what about what about the networking? How do you, uh, you know, like, and the mentorship, the people, you know, in, in those beginning periods that took you under their wing or, you know, that had something that you wanted? Because before you get there, you're in the dark tunnel, right? Before you meet the people who are working, before you meet the people who say you have something. But you're not wrong to say the network because why I got agents was a woman named Mary Ellen Mulcahy. So I went to, they used to have something in New York when the buildings were open. Um, they used to have something, the Actors Equity Building. You could go to the Actors Equity Building and you could do an EPI, which is an Equity Principal Interview, or an EPA, an Equity Principal Audition, for the Broadway show or the traveling theater. 99.9% .9 of the time it was cast. And you knew that you were going not to get the job. You were going, why do you think, Danny? To get seen? To get seen. To meet the casting director. Yeah. That simple. Or the casting director's assistant. Mm -hmm. Or the casting director's third, fourth, fifth assistant down the line. To have them know your name. That's it. It's a crapshoot. But if you don't throw the die, there's no chance of ever being seen, right? So that's why we go. And I went to one and I met this young girl my age. I was 24 at the time. And um, I walked in and... To me, she represented power. She had the power to see me to get me a job. And so she, you know, did my little interview. And I said, how old are you? And she goes, I believe I'm supposed to be asking the questions, Miss Harden. <laughs> I said, well, you just seem so powerful. I mean, here you are with this job and it's amazing. And she, that was Mary Ellen Mulcahy. And then later when I got my backstage my play out of Backstage Magazine by auditioning, which was a miracle. She came to see it. Tyrone Power Jr. was in that play. Scott Farraka was in that play. So Mary Ellen was coming to see them, not to see me. She remembered me because of that one little moment. And she's my manager today. She's been my manager for years wow. and years and years and years. Great friend I've noticed since I was 24. So I shouldn't say years and years, just a few. A few. <laughs> <She's> a few. <laughs> um, and so, she would have been someone then when she would join, was an assistant as an agency, she would push for me to get to go into the um, auditions to meet more casting directors. And then they would be the ones who would start to help me. I think in terms of mentoring, Joey, that happens when you are young and with a job in a way. And sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. So my first film was The Coen Brothers Miller's Crossing. And for a first film, that was a real big deal. And because they're so unique and genius, unbeknownst to them, they've become mentors to me and like a standard of excellence. So much so sometimes to the point that it hasn't, like I haven't, 
probably express my own self enough because I thought, what would the Cohen's think? What would the Cohen's think of this? What would the Cohen's think of that? They're the geniuses, you know, like you just can't help but defer to their, to, to them. And then I had, you know, had to let that go for a while. Ellen Burstyn, Ellen Burstyn has been a big mentor to me over the years as a, as a strong woman actress and a strong woman voice who always looks out for the underdog. But her journey is 100% a spiritual journey. So mentors, like were you, I mean, obviously our friendship, Joey, you've been an incredible mentor for me, an incredible friend and mentor. Uh, but there, Cameron Mannheim, I think your friends become your mentors. But when you say a mentor, it's not like someone telling you how to work. You know, I remember working with Albert Finney on Miller's Crossing and Albert saying, I'm not here to be like the old dog, um, darling, you should do it this way. He said, I'm learning from the Coens. I want to come and have them tell me to do something in a different way than I'm used to. But yeah. Albert did, but still, if you're listening, these people do tell you things. In, you know, in my life, there were like teachers in high school because I didn't know how to read. And and the first play I did was up the downstairs, as a matter of fact. Um, but the teachers, after I did that weekend performance, that came up to me and said, you know, you have an aptitude for this, but if you want to be an actor, you're going to need to learn how to read because at the time I had like a third grade reading level. And so they actually made a deal with me where I could cut class, their classes. And I started acting school in New York while I was still in high school, my last year. And they passed me through. So I didn't have to do homework. As long as I was working with a, a tutor, they found me a third grade elementary school teacher that got me on the path of learning how to read. Um, when I was a kid in, in you school, were, Joe, you were dyslexic, right? Yeah, but I didn't know. I, I didn't know that I had obstacles to overcome, but that was like the first, that's the only, that's the thing that they did. And then I had a friend, Roberta Wallach, who was Ann Jackson and Eli Wallach's daughter. And we were in acting school, uh, uh together. And her mom, Ann Jackson, recommended me to their agent. And so I, I had my first meeting with an agent. Those kinds of things where they said, hey, this kid's got talent. Have a look at him. Um, and, and you know, casting directors, uh, uh, little things. Like there was a guy named Bick Ramos that did bits and extra work casting. Uh, but he's the guy that discovered Matt Dillon and was Matt's manager for years. But I remember he'd give me jobs as an extra in New York, and I and I would watch Robert Mitchum and Shirley MacLaine and Al Pacino and watch them work. Charles Bronson, being that close to seeing these people that I grew up with, watching them on my mother's twelve-inch black and white television set. I got my SAG card from being an extra. Yeah. So those, you know, just kind of being a, a fly on the wall and watching and learning. And but those those kinds of moments that get you to the next level and the next, you know, just keep you in the game with that kind of encouragement. They don't sometimes they don't even know that they were responsible for you in that way. I don't think they do. I think when you give someone a helping hand, it's often forgotten and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But the point is 
it is passing the torch. It is, yeah. it is moving people along. And Danny, when you asked me the question and I responded, anger, anger is a good motivator. I mean, Madonna, I think herself said revenge is the best uh, motivator and it's revenge is the best success. Because, and so there, there was that sense too, I'll show you, you know, that thing. And um, there's the, there was a sense of Mary Ellen, my manager would go, you're getting really good feedback, Marsha, on all the auditions. Just, you know, they got really close. And I remember thinking, I don't fucking care if I get good feedback again. I just want the job because I was tired of catering tables. After I did Middle's Crossing, I went back to catering. I went back to waiting tables just to, to make money. And what you want is a life where you can sustain what you do you know, to what you do. And you're lucky if you have it where you can make a living doing what you do. That's where I realize now in my old age, how dumb I was, you know, because if I wanted to make money, there was so many other opportunities that would have been so much more fruitful and easy. It's like, I want to make a living in show business. It's like crazy. It's a miracle. It's a goddamn miracle. So as anger as like a motivator, how do you make sure that that doesn't come into your everyday life? Like if that's driving you to work, how do you make sure you don't become an angry person all the time? Well, I was, and your dad was too. <laughs> right. So then how do you, how do you make the flip? How do you adjust? Because I've never thought of you as an angry person. Like you're very calm and you're very smart with your emotions. So when did you make that flip? Like what drove you to change that if you changed it or if you still have a little bit of that anger as a motivator and how you control it i think i probably do have a little bit of it still i mean your dad has his own beautiful story so if your listeners don't know his story they should and i'll be quiet while he tells it but i'll just briefly say for me you know you just i noticed always that it was a motivator and that i used it as a tool so early on probably in a relationship with a guy that was going south and you know it was going south and i'm sure the way i handled conflict was louder and more vociferously and more demonstratively than was healthy for a relationship. And because I grew up that way, I didn't really question it. That's how my dad was. And I just didn't question it until you don't like it anymore. You don't like yourself in that way anymore. I remember actually being in therapy and I said, well, what happens when they say that thing? This is a, the bagpiper whom you knew, Joey. Um, what happens when they say this thing, or I know they're lying or whatever, whatever. And then they just say it, they're so willfully obtuse. What happens? And I would just be getting myself into that place of anger that had actually been before. And they said, are you acting right now? I was like, no, but I was because I was reenacting. I wasn't in that moment of that. It was the memory of it was re-motivating whatever. So literally it kind of was acting. But I didn't realize it. And I said, in the moment, what do I do when I just want to throw the milk at the wall or whatever? They said, well, you can leave the room. I said, what? <laughs> I can leave the room? It was a revelation to me. I don't have to stay and engage in the argument. Of course, as a kid, I couldn't leave the room. You stay and engage in the argument. But as an adult, I could leave. So I guess it was embracing being an adult and, and, and this person giving me permission to make a choice for myself. And I think if you grow up dysfunctionally, sometimes you don't give yourself permission to do those things. And so I needed that. I needed that 
the road less traveled books. I needed all of that. I needed the Marble Collegiate Church. I needed all of this to give me these little lessons to go, you can change. And, and it, you know, it took a while. Then you, what are your triggers? You know, all of that. It took a while. I think during um, Gods of Carnage, I used a lot of what is in me for the play. And I buried it for a long time. The God of Carnage, for people who don't know, is a play where my character is, I think she's a sweet little docile woman from, you know, a politically correct woman living in Brooklyn. And her rage erupts on stage toward her husband, who is played by James Gandolfini, God bless him, who we both, Joey and I both have in common. Um, and she ends up pounding James on the couch. And it was a comedy, of course, like a, you know, as when you pound your husband on the couch, it is very funny. Um, and uh, I remember feeling those things start to come live with me a little bit again, live within me again. So they always say awareness is the first step. Awareness is the first step. But if your ears aren't open, if you're not watching around you, if you, you know, you have to be aware that you're uncomfortable. You have to be, you have to read things around you to know that having elevated heart rate and anger at the drop of a hat is kind of like bullying in a way. And, and then you're, and then you're motivated to change. And so that was, that was for me. And it's a long, it's a long journey. I still, sometimes it's really helpful, right? So that's the other thing that happens. Anger helped me survive as a kid. And then there's a point when as an adult, my therapist goes, you don't, you don't need that anymore as your major survival tool. What? I can put it down. But I remember being <laughs> down here driving by a bus and seeing someone beating up someone else, two girls, a girl and a guy being beaten up by another guy. Honey, this is, you, you know where, um, you know the entrance to the, to the wharf down uh, on 66, the Santa Monica Pier? Yep. This is where it was happening, that bus stop right there at Moombot whatever park. And I pulled over, not completely over, blocking the bus. Because the bus driver was sitting there watching the people getting beaten up. And I jumped out of the Jeep, my Jeep. Stop it! Stop it! I was like Stanley Kowalski. No, you're like Albert Finney in the dresser. Stop the train! Like, stop, stop! You need to rock out my the, the curse words. And they were so shocked. They stopped and it separated. And then I'm like, get on that bus to the persons who were being beaten up. And they got on the bus. And the other bug guy was standing there. There was cops across the way. And I was like, wait, okay. It's so, like, they, you know, they coming over, like got in the car and drove away. Now, maybe that was stupid, but it was also helpful. <laughs> in that situation that it reared its angry head. But Joey, tell yours. Oh, um, we I've, have his. Yeah, we've, we've talked we about that his. before. But I call I didn't call it anger. I called it resentment. I'll, you know, I was motivated by I'll show them. I'm not a piece of shit. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. You know, it's the same thing. Yes. But I also want to talk because you guys did Canvas together and, you know, my dad's story. Canvas was a big part of when he started to make a change. So what was your experience like working with him in that in that movie? And also your role in that was you performed it beautifully. But I imagine that was very challenging. And what did you do to prepare for it? And 
that Joey made those revelations about himself during that film was a surprise to me. I knew Joey's story, his book was out, his mom, his uncle, his dad, the jail, the this, the that, the everybody. I knew this past that Joey came from, and I knew the many obstacles that Joey had had growing up as a young boy, and despite all those obstacles, got out, basically. Joey got out, one of the, one of the ones that got out. And, and then, so doing this, and I just thought that was Joey. I thought Joey's life was Joey, and I thought, yeah, Joey, you're a pain in the ass to Nancy and the kids sometimes. And he was the only, but there's a part of me, frankly, that liked it. Joey was the only father I knew who was, was as, was just as himself in front of his kids as he was not in front of his kids. So mm -hmm. Joey thought nothing to say, get your feet off the fucking couch, Danny. And then, <laughs> How can you talk to her like that? He'd be like, that's how I fucking talk. I fucking talk all the time. And you, give me some fucking this. Bring the beer from that. And you'd be like, but I'm homo, kid. Stop it. But I liked it, too, because it was honest. And and always seemed to have a little humor. Like, I literally take myself tongue-in-cheek. But then I wasn't there for the private times when it might have been harder for the family, right? So what I saw wasn't an alarm bell for me. Um, and then doing the film, I think Mary was her name, right, Joey? Mary? Mary? Your, your character? Yes. Mary. So I, I, I did, you know, enough research about schizophrenia. I must have, I watched something. Maybe I watched like doctor's interviews and was reading different things. We went to that Fountain House. Oh, that's right. We went to Fountain House. But oddly, it came pretty naturally to me. <laughs> It wasn't um, such a mystery, maybe partly because of my dad, maybe because of you know, certain family things. I don't know, or I, I, I don't, it was a while ago, Danny, so I don't remember exactly, but I know with Joey, we did research, we talked to a lot of people, we talked to doctors. I wanted to understand kind of the, the not being present in one's place and, and the inability to really center your breath, because if you're centered, then it's one thing. And so playing her, was was wonderful actually it's a wonderful acting experience the understanding of joey's journey came after and i do remember being on it joey going you're like my mother i'm having some revelations right now about maybe what i grew up with and i took it like oh uh-huh like an action <laughs> so I, I don't mean to be that callous i don't know how deeply yeah no the thing was marcia was you well you started we started working the scenes and, and I, I was like, gee, who she, Marsha reminds me of somebody. It's my mother. She reminds me of my mother. And what I brought to you was I said, you, you, you know, you remind me. Cause my mom was always worried that something was going to happen. You know, like the, like there was, I was going to get struck by lightning and you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And, and, um, and so, you, the the auditory hallucinations that you your character Mary was experiencing, it wasn't as overt as that. But it, it, the thing that stuck in my craw was, I always thought my mother wasn't nuts. I just thought she was willful and didn't want to change. That she was stuck in her ways and fuck you if you didn't like it. And after working with you and seeing the evolution of the character that you uh, built. I was like haunted by the idea. Well, 
But what if she was actually what they call what they're calling mentally ill, that it was a disease and not a choice? Because I I didn't think my mother was crazy. I thought she was Italian-American. I thought it was a cultural thing. And, and then, you know, finding out the you know the, 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 that she was a victim of sexual abuse by a father, all of these things that evolved, um, you know, and the, and the sexual promiscuity and the fact that my cousin Floria turns out was actually my biological father. So that Dominic Panigliano, that I'm not really Joe Panigliano at all. I'm not a Panigliano, you know, genetically speaking. So all of those things that were going on opened up a window for me when we finished working <clears throat> and then the work that we were encouraged to do because the, the mental health community embraced the movie and we went to all of these events and I thought, like, well, I, you know, what? and I, by the, by the way, unbeknownst to you, I don't know if you knew that I was sucking down about, you know, 20 Vicodin a day. See, I get, did not know that. All I knew through the day. to drink. You and yeah. I, we were, we were drinking buddies. We sometimes were over drinking buddies, but for the most part, you know, we were, we were fun loving risk taking, not compared to others to now in my age. Now I look back and I go, yeah, we were like, if we were had a couple of drinks, we would dance on the bar like that. Like, yeah. But also we were like show business. You're encouraged to be spontaneous. You're encouraged that to, to drown out that little voice saying, don't do that. We were, you know, I was encouraged to do it all. Just let it out and uh, and be private, you know, in a room full of people. It's funny because I think about one of the things I realized. Um, I was living up in Harlem and I was often going away to do work and I would come back and immediately I would, when I would come in the house, it was like downstage center in a way that it meant I'm home. I didn't melt into the environment that I walked into. I'm home and now my job is to entertain or to take charge or to do this. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, they say as an actor, the best thing you can do is be a good listener. I think I wasn't such a great listener other than if I was acting in home life, somehow this thing as an entertainer was still operating on me. And that was part of Joey's change was part of me changing. But I, but to get back to your question, Danny, I didn't really understand it as Joey saying until afterwards and his revelation about himself and then his, you know, he was doing all the pills and I knew that it was hard on you guys and the family. At that time, I started learning more about it. And Joey and I did a lot of the mental health stuff. And, you know, I love the no kidding me too, because literally it's like, who isn't on some level? Who isn't stressed, aggravated, you know, under mental duress on some level all over the world, right? And then how do we choose to handle that? And I guess it's people who handle it dysfunctionally, you know, that starts to say, like, I think everybody, everybody is stressed on some level. I really do. I think everybody has their issues, but where, where it falls off to where you would actually be diagnosed, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a different story. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Danny, but one of the... Epiphanies, the pit, here the, we go. Uh, awakening. Twin sister lives. <laughs> <laughs> She's but, in an institution. Uh, Remember uh, that uh, episode in the Crown when they found all their sisters in the crazy camp? Okay, well, I had, uh, you know, I was seeing this uh, a psychiatrist, 
and uh and for for a time and i was going through recovery uh getting off of the pills and and t- doing the 12 step program and and kind of thawing out emotionally all these feelings started coming up that i hadn't had felt for years um all this pain was just oozing out of me all the time i just would start talking and i'd just be crying uh and and i didn't know where it was coming i was just in a lot of pain so and you know in psychiatrists uh, a lot of times they just kind of they 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 write make little notes on the pad and they nod their head and mm-hmm. and um and my and my guy dr kelly he was uh, uh half irish and half jewish so he had the face of ireland map of ireland on his face but he he talked like a you know a bronx jewish guy and he and and he's nodding his head one day and he and he says to me he says you're not going to like hearing this but your first conscious thought when you wake up in the morning is fuck i'm still here and i just started sobbing because you know i i, I for the longest time i I didn't know why I wanted to die. I wanted to die desperately. And and I was like, but schmuck, you're finally getting everything you ever wanted, you know? Schmuck. I mean, isn't that odd? Uh, is these conversations I would have with myself. But when he said that, I was like, yeah, I don't want to live anymore. And that's why I was messing around with these very dangerous pills because I was hoping that I would accidentally drop dead. Can I ask you something, Joey? Is that was it related to not wanting to grow old? Because living means accepting the progress of life, and that you would grow old, and you don't want. Were you so miserable in the moment, or had you no vision for loving yourself as an old man? Um, I don't. Well, hmm. this was. I don't know if it was about being old. I think in the back of my brain, frankly, always thought that, well, you know, you're a character actor, so the older you get, the better the better opportunities you're going to get. I didn't realize that movie stars would start doing character parts and the line would get longer. But uh, that was always... So it wasn't about growing old. Uh, I don't think... Stars, I mean- you on a walker and diapers and like whatever. No, I didn't. I didn't think that far. No, I don't think so. That 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 even that hasn't occurred to me yet. Um, I just think that it's uh, occurred to Nancy. It's occurred <laughs> to Nancy. <laughs> I, I I just think that um, that I wanted to die because I was I wanted to put the pain out. I wanted to turn the pain off. Because I was in a lot of pain, you know, so and the clinical depression that I was diagnosed with, as it turns out, as I thought out five years afterwards, the depression wasn't, you know, the depression was a, in some respects a byproduct of the the chemical dependency that I had. Of course. Uh, I, and I didn't know that. But, you know, there's an overwhelming sadness that, and I think that, that that's part of I've talked to this with other with other guests. Uh, there, uh, an overwhelming sadness that lives inside the pit of my soul, that it's empathetic for the kind of work. So, so the kind of degree of madness that that we've been gifted 
by the creative gods is really good for the kind of work that we do. And what makes you special is that little gift. Well, it's accessible. If you, if your if your sadness is accessible to you to use in a scene. Yeah. And it's truly is a gift, but you know, I, do you not think everybody's in some kind of pain or are people just so differently aware of? Absolutely. I think so. And some, but some people, uh, are gifted, uh, you know, that, that they have that beautiful ignorance, uh, blissful ignorance that they don't that they don't even know, you know, the awakening, like scientifically, like where does the brain and body store pain? Because like today, I'm in the interview with Ellen Burson. I'm, I'm interviewing them. And you and Danny know that years ago, 2003, my nephew and niece were lost to us in a fire. Mm-hmm. So um, that was painful, deeply painful at that time. And I mourned it during that time, couldn't stop crying. Now, years and years later, very occasionally I'll think about them and have shed a tear. Today, I was telling the story about Ellen during that time when she had come to me because I couldn't, I was five months pregnant when Audrey and Sander were oh, lost. Oh, I first. forgot that part. And um, I couldn't stop crying at, the to- at that time. Retelling the story, I burst into that kind of mottled cantaloupe, red face crying out of the blue. Like just retelling, like I can tell you now it's not there, but retelling this morning unexpectedly, because I was trying to tell Vanessa about a moment when Ellen had said, you have to stop crying. You have to teach those children inside of you that there is joy. (laughs) You know, there, there was no joy. I was busy making deals with the devil about why did I have two and not dad lost his kids? And, you know, how can I get them back? Basically deal with the devil. And Ellen brought these two speakers and she put them on my stomach, my enormous belly. And she had a little speaker attached to it. that was playing the most beautiful music in the world. It was Mozart and Haydn and Pachelbel and Ode to Joy and just music that was just, you know, ethereal. And she said, you have to teach those children that there is joy in the world. You have to teach them that. And so I would go around every day playing this classical music on my stomach so that they could hear it through my stomach. And I burst into tears at the memory this morning and couldn't stop for a little bit. And then pulled it. Ellen said, talk through your tears, because she's the master acting teacher. Talk through your tears, Marshall. Like, okay, I will. And so I did. And um, I, that, that made me think in this conversation, where is pain stored? Why can you live your life and then in one conversation it comes bursting out or the truth given from a psychiatrist, you wake up and wish you were dead and you're like, Oh, or you know how, when you feel badly, Danny, mm-hmm. and it's nice to you and you're like that, stop being nice to me. Cause that makes yeah. me cry. Like it's just, it's, it's odd. And I, I don't know if they've done enough studies about where do we store I- I think I was actually listening to a podcast called The Anxiety Sisters, um, people who I I hope to speak to because they've done a lot of research on this. And the second episode is about it living in the gut. It lives in your gut. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of studies, but 
to what you were saying, you know, how can you go years and years and not, and, and not, you know, burst into tears. I think it would be something very helpful for more of us to do. And it's something my therapist told me once, um, when I was talking about my dad and him finding out that his dad wasn't his dad. And he said, does he ever honor his father that, that died? That wasn't his actual, that he didn't know at the time was his actual father. Did he like light a candle when he found out that he was his real father and like mourn him? And I think we all have this pain and we go about our lives and it's not that we forget it, but we just are doing other things. I think it'd be really interesting if we all took a day out of the year to cry to be sad about it and then like access it like you said to be able to access it feel it and then we can not move on but give it its honor and then be able to tell the story without breaking down and even if you break down it's a beautiful thing but to not let go years go by and not give them a day you know give them a day right that's a good point there's a, it's like the inverse of in Japan, there's these laughing benches. Have you heard about those? No. There are these laughing benches in a park and you go and you sit on the bench and you start laughing, forcing it. <laughs> and you do it. You know, we've all played that game in a party with our friends until someone else is laughing until every, then everybody's laughing around you, but you just do it as an exercise. You go and you do that. these laughing benches. And this is like the reverse of that. We should, we should have but, crying, but laughing, yeah, but that, but the crying, laughing, all of these things produce dopamine, serotonin. It raises the levels of, of, uh, of, of the emotional, what they call the imbalance with people that are unipolar, that are you know, bipolar or bipolarity is an abundance of dopamine serotonin where you're on a high and uh, and the unipolar is when you're on a low and you don't have enough. Now, I, I've come to believe, and you were saying the gut, but they also call it the solar plexus, your stomach and your chest. And, yeah. and so I think it's a soul sickness, not a brain disease. I think it's a soul disease and that because you feel it here. And, and I've been watching um, a documentary about people who have had near-death experiences where they actually died. And one woman in particular drowned uh, while river rafting. She was dead for 45 minutes. Her brain was dead. She was able to see everything and feel everything, an overwhelming feeling. And when I, when I get anger, uh, uh, when I'm angry or I'm happy, or I'm laughing, or whatever the uh, you know the seven emotions are. I always feel it here in my chest. I never mm. feel it in my head, Mm-mm. ever. I feel it in my stomach. I feel my stomach, my throat sometimes, but the chest and throat. And the throat is usually only because you're trying to suppress it. Yes, always. When you, I would find that if I was doing a scene, I was supposed to be crying or whatever, and I was all up here. That just meant I was blocking and blocking. And then my teacher would say, get on your voice. And he'd be like, I'm on my voice. And then you jump back into the scene and get on your voice until finally you do the scene and you're doing it. You're on your voice and suddenly you're like sobbing and you're there and you're like, oh my God. And and why? It's just because you suddenly let go and you let the connection, I think, from the gut to the voice to all of it happen. But I'm always been curious with how some emotions are acceptable. So laughter. Anger, not so much. 
Uh, pain. Why are you crying? Pain. Like, well, what, what's the matter with you? Why are you crying? Don't do that. Don't cry. I watched Pygmalion last night uh, 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 with uh, Leslie Howard and Wendy Heller. It's a genius movie. I don't know if you, know, uh, if you ever saw it. But I saw My Fair Lady, so I haven't seen Pygmalion. I you've got to. It's 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 extraordinary. It was made in 1938. So you're seeing this movie that's almost 100 years old. Wow. And, and of a period of time where emotions made, you know, it makes when she when she starts crying, it makes I mean, Leslie Howard is incredibly uncomfortable. Like, what what, what is that? What are you doing? Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. It's brilliant. Uh, but it's all about these feelings that um, culturally that we've been taught that some feelings are appropriate. And some feelings aren't. And also, and when? Oh my God! Can we? When? The worst thing ever when you really are communicating with someone and you start crying and be like, "Oh God, don't do that! Don't me, do that thing! Me. Don't do that!" And you're like, I can't help it. It's completely involuntary. It's something I've talked to my boyfriend about, like, because whenever we, you know, talk, we never, we've, we've never fought. And I think that's incredibly healthy. And I never wanted to be a fighting couple because I I know what that looks like. (laughs) Um, And I think it's actually that trauma of when my parents would fight, I'd be in the other room paralyzed, tears. But now whenever I'm in a confrontation, whether it's just a conversation with my boyfriend about how we can be better with each other. If it's, you know, a conversation with the boss, I my throat gets all choked up and I cry and I cannot control it. And it's something I don't want to get rid of because I think it's okay to be feeling the emotion and showing the emotion, but I would love some control over it. Well, Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, it's a beautiful scene because she cries. Her character cries. And and, and they deal with that. I think it's Albert Brooks. Initially, the, the people, especially the men, feel like, oh, we have to stop doing whatever we're doing to take care of the crying person. And she's like, no, just move on. Just move on. I'm just crying. That's all. And then so she cries through it and talks through it. And the world doesn't have to stop. And so that's maybe what we have to give people permission to do. I'm just crying. I'm not trying to manipulate you. It's right. Just, but a lot of times I, I was keep told going. I was told by, a ther- by one of my many therapists that tears come because because you don't feel entitled to the anger it's tears first mm. then the anger well I, I have them both at the same time sometimes there you go I, yeah. I don't i don't feel entitled to anger i don't know if i've ever really been angry but here's the interesting thing about fighting and anger i do feel like there's a place for anger in a relationship i don't feel like there's a place for disrespect because mm-hmm. i feel like once you've disrespected them you've gotten away with it yeah. And let's say you do it once. You can never do it again because it is like bullying. And I think because Joey and I were brought up with, with parents that as a way of rearing us, a way of communicating, a way of loving, they, or not parents, my dad, he mixed as much disrespect, you know, there was violence, as much of that in with the love. And so you came to think it was the same thing that they were conjoined and to separate them to extrapolate one from the other is really a journey that you have to make as, as an adult. Although some kids are able to make it. I thought it was perfectly fine to say shit to your lover because they were your, they were yours. They were your lover. Like they were yours. Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't own them. They can, people, you know, people are their own. And so I personally, I think anger is okay. 
because you have to sometimes. Sometimes things do incite you to anger, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how to express it in a way that wasn't disrespectful. I didn't know how to leave the room. Well, I, I always wanted to be disrespectful because I wanted to hurt hurt you, you know, hurt because I was hurt. So I wanted to I wanted to hurt you, uh, you know, whoever that you was. Me too, Joey. I remember an argument where my ex said something really mean to me, and I said something really mean back. And they said, see, you do it. I said, yeah, I did it. I want to hurt you, but you don't think that you're saying it me because you want to hurt me. <laughs> like, like, at least I owned it, right? That there was a, you know, but it wasn't that, what I learned later because it doesn't ever just stop at the person. It, it goes downhill to the kids. It then, you know, becomes something that ekes out and it permeates the atmosphere of the home. And what I really understood is it's bullying. It's bullying mm -hmm. to walk into a home angry and expect everything to stop. It's bullying to to say mean things to people because you cow them. And it's a, it's, and it's not okay. It is not okay. And that, that was, you know, that was a journey until you would think, well, why would you have to learn that? I think, well, if you don't grow up with a different example, or if you grow up with the schismed example, my mom was one example, but it was so docile. And my dad was another example and he had the power. So I lied with the power, you know, not the docility. And then, and then you learn, you grow and you learn. What do you teach your kids? That's a question I really like knowing because, I mean, I know your kids and they're so. What do you think I treat my, teach my kids, Danny? To be honest about their emotions and to feel them. Yeah, I do. I want them to. And, and to know me and my flaws and faults. To yeah. not pretend like I'm impervious. Not do as I say, do not as I do. To. I teach them that what they have to say is worth me listening to. They, they teach me and I teach them. But most, of, most important to me is honesty. I don't want to chase you to find out what you're really feeling. I don't want you to act one way to me and then me find out that that's a lie. I want you to be really honest and really for the most part they are. I think for the most part they are. I have different relationships with each one of them. And I think, Earlier on, you know, I think they might have been more scared of me than they're not scared of me anymore. Damn it, I miss those days. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I understand that being scared of a parent. I was scared of my dad a lot of the times, and it's not, it's not ever, it's not scared that he's they're going to be abusive. You know, he's never abusive, but it's just he's a big voice. He's a big energy, and you're the same way. You're a big energy, you've a big voice, so it's. It's just fear of that noise. It's a fear of, yeah, because the noise takes up space and it sucks out of the room the opportunity for you to be completely you because mm -hmm. the other person is so completely them and potentially even judging who you are and not thinking there's anything wrong with saying who you are, judging who you are. I think my kids wanted to be seen for who they were. And mm -hmm. each one of them was a different journey and not necessarily who I was or who I wanted them to be or thought they were. And I, and so then I wanted them to know whatever you are, that's okay. Whoever you are, that's okay. Just be you. And if I'm in, and if trust me that if you say, mom, that's a little much for me right now, I'm not going to maybe respond how I used to in the past. I'm going to listen to you. But Joey and I can't, those are the good things about us sometimes is that we are adamant. We do have opinions and so I think mine teach me to listen better 
to listen to their there and to validate. That's a good point. That's a good point. What about this? Um, and I, I think they are who they are. You know, that that's makes me proud, Danny, that they are who they are and they know. And I also what I taught them is I am always here. I will always be here. I will always have your back. I will be here. You, you know, you, I can't save you, but I am, if you want to swim to this raft, I am here and I'm not going to go downstream and not be here for you. Mm-hmm. And I will say, you know, Joey, I, this is maybe so, so private, but there was a moment when I, maybe we weren't sure how you would be there, but you were, you are too there. And I think that's really beautiful because you had a very difficult journey and you overcame a lot to choose to be there. You didn't have to choose that and you did. All right, guys, I am going to go. Love you, Marsha. Thank you so much, Marsha. We love you. I just wanted to say that um, that I I love this conversation. I love Marsha so much that I feel a little guilty that I didn't die so that she you could had grown up with her. <laughs> it would have been wonderful, but I did grow up with her. You know, you didn't have to die for me to grow up with her. Um, That's right. You know, she said she's like a she's a raft. I could swim to her. I know I could swim to her. She's always going to be there for me. I have a feeling people will now feel like she's there for them with how you know she spoke and she's just so. I always. This is going to be very redundant after every episode. I'm just always so, oh, that was amazing. It's amazing. Well, it just you is. feel better. Just like you any feel kind better. Of it's therapeutic. You, you just feel, I, I feel better. I feel less alone. All right. So that was amazing. Um, we hope you liked listening to that, that it was therapeutic for you and that you feel better and that you feel like you can go sit on a bench and cry or laugh or be mad. If you have something to say about it, uh, put look in our show notes. There's places you can email us and send us your stories. Um, let us know how you feel because we're letting you know how we feel. So it's a two-way street. Rate us, subscribe, tell a friend, listen with a family member. This is a great place to start that journey lightly. You know, if you you know want to give someone a subtle hint, hey, let's start talking about our emotions. Let's listen to this cool podcast. And remember, ain't none of us perfect. Ain't none of us perfect. And don't keep your shit together, people. I love you, Danny. I love you, Daddy.